Welcome to Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio WPSC on the campus of William Patterson University. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp. And I'm the good Dr. Steve Marconi. Our show is a little different this week, isn't it, Steve? That's right. This show, taken from our Spring Music Management Seminar Series, features adjunct professor Steve Leeds. Listen hard, because there's some great stuff here. Don't you agree, my co-host with the mo-host? Whatever you say. Be sure to go to musicbiz101wp.com to sign up for our newsletter, read about current events in the music industry, and learn more about our podcast. Yes, our podcast is available on Stitcher Radio. You can download Stitcher for free on your iOS or Android device. Stick around and listen to this insightful interview. Then come back next week at 8 p.m. for another great Music Biz 101 and More radio show. Free advice about the music industry every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. Take it away, Steve Leeds! Well, good evening. Um, Thanks for coming. Um, it's our continuing series here this semester. Um, tonight, we're really fortunate to have um, with us a, a very talented writer. Um, any of you subscribe to New Yorker, you see his articles fairly regularly in there. Um, his name is John Seabrook. He's written several books. Um, his most recent book, you're all obviously aware of, The Song Machine. Um, John is uh, taught at uh, Princeton. And he was gracious enough uh, tonight to come here to William Patterson and uh, share some of his thoughts and answer some of your questions um, about the uh, music business circa 2016. Um, in route tonight, um, I was telling um, John a tale of uh, the state of the business. This um, is before we got pulled over by the cops. Before I got pulled over by the right. cops. Okay. It's always good to have a get-out-of-jail card. <laughs> yeah, Steve got out of it. I can tell you about that later. And, and, <laughs> and, and always keep um, your university st- window sticker because he was wanted to talk about some of the schools that uh, uh, the stickers were reflected, so it was quite helpful. Um, in any case, um, the story I, want, I was to share, um, one of our programmers at SiriusXM um, was looking for a, uh, a four-year-old CD from a, uh, an established Broadway singer. I'm going to change the names and protect the innocent label by not giving you the specifics. But in any case, he asked me if I could help him by getting the CD because he wanted to um, play it on his channel. Um, I said, sure. So I called uh, the label, um, and after a couple of tries, the woman was on vacation. She eventually got back to me and said, can I help you? I said, yeah, so um, one of our programs wants this CD. She said, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, we don't keep product, love that word, in the offices anymore, um, so we'll have it shipped directly from the plant. Oh, okay. So we have your address. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right. So a week goes by, doesn't show up. Maybe the mailroom took it. I don't think so. Anyway, so about eight or nine days, I finally get, okay, I'm going to call her. So I call her, and she's like, um, you don't have that? I, I put the paperwork through. I'll call you back. She calls me back a few minutes later and said, um, well, it turns out the plant shipped the CD to you, Steve, but at a wrong address. So we're trying to track it down and get it resent to you. You see, we don't have any more of that CD. You're shipping it from the plant. So if some consumer, perchance, might want to buy that, that vocal CD, they couldn't because it doesn't exist. They don't have any in stock. So I guess you'd have to find some place that 
still had a couple of copies left. But as far as finding the label, having copies of it to make available to the consumer, it doesn't, it doesn't exist in a, in a disc form. So, you know, that's where we are as far as the music industry, the record company, if you will, um, this year. Anyway, that's just personal experience. Um, this man's book is so current. It, uh, there's, I'm sure you're all familiar, for example, with the, uh, the Kesha situation. Would I be correct in assuming that? Yet this chapter in here where it almost looks like it was written last week and now the newspapers or magazines or online are following up with the story. So I, I can only say how great this book is as a current document because in most cases, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, most books that come out on, on the entertainment or music industry are almost out of date the day they get published because things are changing so rapidly in the fluid nature of the business. Um, but um, John, I, I told my, I feel like sometimes when I when I was reading the book that like I was hanging out with him because he just makes it so you're you're part of the scene, you're part of the process. And um, one of my, I guess one of my more favorite parts is when you're in Sweden and you're meeting all these guys who are you know who are responsible for mentoring other people as well as writing hits on their own and. Um, did you, was this originally an article and it expanded to the point where it became a chapter and you said, oh, this could be a book? Yeah, so the book actually began in a fairly uh, organic, uh, natural way. Uh, for those of you that have read it, I, I, I actually begin the book where it actually began, uh, which was the day my, dad, my son got into the front seat of the car and changed all the radio stations to you know, from classic rock stations to pop stations. And I, and I started listening to pop music uh, circa 1911, 19, I mean, uh, 2011, 2010, that I hadn't really been listening to actively for a while. And uh, one of the things that, you know, just sort of immediately struck me was, you know, the lack of uh, instruments as I know them, guitars, keyboards, drums, uh, really, any instrument, uh, as, you know, in terms of classical instruments that w were used in making the music, and uh, you know that that just sort of seemed like a significant thing that perhaps think about like music, contemporary music, the changes in the music business and the changes in music technology is that they happen so fast. You know, newspapers and, and magazines cover them. You know, each time one of those changes occurs, but then there isn't a whole lot of carryover in terms of oh, this broader change is occurring. You you sort of don't see the forest for the trees a little bit, and then there are books that are obviously written about music business and the music uh, and music history, but they tend to have about subjects that are like well in the past, like Motown or. Uh, you know, the 60s, you know, whatever, the Laurel Canyon scene or whatever. And so I kind of realized that there hadn't really been a book that looked at the last 20, 25 years of how songs were made uh, and how it kind of changed from being a sort of a lyrics and melody, people sitting around a piano kind of banging out a tune uh, that then got arranged and produced to 
what obviously was a completely electronic uh, thing. Uh, and uh, I was just curious, I was curious both about how that changed and, and how it worked, how, how, how these songs were made. And, um, and because I write, write for The New Yorker, uh, and because The New Yorker has this incredible ability to sort of open doors, uh, I realized that I could actually get an answer, maybe, to that question by figuring out who a top producer was and seeing if they would let me come and sit in the room while they, while they did their thing. And, um, and so I looked at the Billboard charts, and, you know, uh, Firework was actually the top song at that point, Katy Perry's Firework. And the, the people who, who created Firework were, I didn't know who they were at the time, but it was a production team called Stargate and uh, a woman named Esther Dean. And uh, I was like, well, I don't know who those people are, but Stargate seems to be based in New York, and uh, so I'll just start there. And literally, you know, that's, I, 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 I pitched it as a New Yorker article. They said, yeah, that sounds cool. You know, just hanging out in the studio watching how a pop hit gets made. And then I, you know, got in touch with Stargate, and Stargate turns out to be these two Norwegian guys, which was also kind of interesting to me that they were Norwegian. They were actually very well known for their work also in, like, the hip-hop world. They had done Black and Yellow with Wiz Khalifa and had sort of some cred in the hip-hop world and in the R&B world, which I thought was interesting, and I didn't really quite understand how Norwegians, you know, were able to do that. Uh, but but anyway, so I got in touch with them, and, and they let me come and 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 hang around uh, and watch what they did, and that was the part of the book uh, that uh, it's now it's sort of in the middle uh, because after I had that uh, reporting experience and have I mean you know so yeah it was amazing to watch them write songs uh, what they did and and you guys perhaps know how this works is they. Um, they would create a lot of tracks on the computer, which were, you know, beats, basically, but they were more than beats. They were chord progressions. I mean, they had musical chops. They weren't just beat makers. They definitely had some melodic ideas, but they, they, they didn't have melodies in them, and they didn't have words in them. And, uh, and they would make a lot of them at the same time, or, you know, they, they had a big bank of them. And then they would invite these people in who were called top liners, uh, who would come in and listen to tracks, uh, and uh, when they heard one that they thought they could work with, basically would like uh, go into the vocal booth and and improvise. And and if if something didn't happen within a couple of minutes, they would usually move on to another track. Uh, it was really a lot of it was about like the vibe and and what happened spontaneously uh, in those in that situation. And the, the top liner who I met in the course of that process, Esther Dean, uh, and it, it turns out to be like the one who, who you know, just really the, the person at the very sort of top of the top line game who had done Rude Boy for uh, Rihanna and uh, Super Bass for Nicki Minaj and, uh, and uh, uh, Come and Get, you know, you, very sort of the hooks that she does are sort of primitive in a way, and and uh, but they they kind of get you in your soul or something. 
And watching her do it on the mic was amazing. You know, she would just go in there and freestyle, and she had little phrases and words on her phone that she would sort of look at. But basically, it was just feeling the music and then spitting out uh, a hook. And, and that was all they wanted. That was what they needed. As soon as uh, the Stargate guys heard the hook, they were off to the races, uh, and then they would chop it up and move it around and, you know, do it all on the machine. And, uh, and if it was a hit, it was worth a couple million dollars, and all likelihood, it was not a hit, and they would just throw it out and um, start again. And, and, and they weren't interested in making albums. Uh, they weren't interested in, you know, like art. I mean, it is art. But it's, they didn't think of, I mean, it's, it's a pretty commercial enterprise, but there was a lot of creativity involved. And anyway, it was, it was fascinating. And it was a fantastic, like, week-long experience inside, you know, one of these rooms. Am I, am I correct that Neo started as a top liner? Yeah, Neo, Neo well, actually, I think he might have started as an artist, but had his first success as a top liner. Almost all top liners want to be artists, including Esther Dean. Uh, and yeah. Esther Dean, you might now know from the Pitch Perfect movies. She's the black woman in the Pitch Perfect movies. Uh, and uh, she still wants to be an artist. But that's sort of an interesting dynamic because as you get success as a top liner, particularly when you're like writing songs for Rihanna, uh, really, and the people around you are also like managing Rihanna, they're managing you. Like, they don't really want you to be... I mean, they, 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 they do indulge your fantasies about being an artist, but ultimately, if you become an artist, then you're going to keep your songs for yourself, and they want your songs for Rihanna, you know, because she's Rihanna, so... So, somebody says, I want to be a top-liner. How would one... Do you have any idea how one becomes a top-liner? Well, there's definitely qualities that make you attractive as a top-liner that have to do with not just... Obviously, you have to have vocal uh, chops. I mean, you know, they're looking for someone that can not only deliver the uh, top line, but can also do the demo, like sing on the demo. Uh, so, you know, if you can do both, uh, you know, then, then that's one person they don't need. But I, I think in terms of, like, how, like, the skills that make top liners successful is... You have to be able to walk into a room with strangers uh, and in the course of a couple of hours really sort of tap into something emotional and real, as, as real as you can, inside yourself and come out with it and, and really be able to collaborate with the other people who are probably equally like nervous about being in a room with strangers but equally ambitious and, and they want... You know, the, you know, a lot of this stuff takes place at song camps. Uh, the more and more I feel like song camps are the way out, at least album projects are done. And so at a typical song camp, uh, it might be a weekend or it might be longer. It might be in like Miami or L.A. or something. You'll be invited uh, as a top liner with a number of other top liners and then a number of other producers. So maybe five of each or something. And... Um, you're mixed and matched throughout the course of whatever, the, the week or the three days. So like in the morning, you'll be matched with a producer and you'll be charged with writing a song. And then in the afternoon, you'll be matched with another producer 
and charged with writing a song. And everybody listens to everybody else's songs after each session. So there's a lot of pressure, really, on you to come up with a song. And then the artist goes around to the different rooms and listens and contributes thoughts or you know, picks up one thing and maybe moves it to another. And, and so the people who can like, really like, do their best work in those situations... I think are the people that are probably going to get ahead because that's what they want. They want somebody who can deliver, particularly when the art. And if the artist is on hand, you know, let's say the like Rihanna is actually there, uh, you you have to be like ready to work and be professional and 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 deliver. I think make it sound so it sounds so clinical and so uncreative from the point of view of what people perception of creativity is, you know, somebody sitting at home, you know, fiddling around trying to write a song. That's why I like to read this couple lines in the New York Times. Great. Uh, Songs may be properly classed with staples and are manufactured, advertised, and distributed in much the same way as ordinary commodities. The minstrels and ballad writers of old probably brought more talent to bear upon their work and took greater pains with it than do their latter-day successors. That was written in 1910, uh, you know, so it's not like a new thing. Uh, I, I think when, when you're talking about uh, popular songs, uh, they are very commercial entities, and they, they often are created for entirely commercial reasons. They may also be beautiful and great, uh, but I think there's always been a strong impulse to try to mechanize the process, and a part of my book is about why that works and then why it doesn't work, why uh, there's often a backlash against, you know, sort of factory-produced songs. Uh, and, you know, I think for some of the reasons you were just sort of touching on, that that sometimes it does become too mechanized and it, it loses some soul. But I do think that the future is... Uh, uh, being able to allow the technology uh, of uh, you know electronic production and also collaboration over the internet with multiple writers like that's another I guess that's another thing that I learned from my experience in writing this book was songs really aren't just written by two people anymore they're written really written by often six people sometimes 12 people or more. Uh, and if you look at the credits on some songs, and, you know, I think that's because, you know, you can share everything over the Internet. And, I mean, it's always been a collaborative medium, even when it was two people. But getting a whole bunch of people in a room was maybe not particularly, uh, you know, sort of feasible or, or productive in other ways. But being able to sort of ask over the Internet somebody that you maybe met in, you know, on a website or on Facebook, and do they have, like, an idea for this? Mel- you could send them a beat and, you know, get something back. And, and I feel like data, it, it, I call it, you know, I call this a song machine, but the machine is really a, an information processing. It's, it's really not about the mechanization, but the digitization I think of of songwriting and uh, and you know that's just how the technology is enabling it. In in your book, you talk about the concept of a hit factory, and you go back to the twenties. 
uh, to a company, I think it was T.B. Harris. Yeah. And, and, I mean, and you can see the progression, how, you know, a lot of us who grew up with music and even today don't realize that they're products of factories that maybe the term's repugnant to some folks, but I was just making a list here. So in the 20s, it was uh, T.B. Harris. Um, then there was, uh, I guess you'd have to call them the first rock and roll, you know, innovators were Lieber and Stoller. Lieber and Stoller. And then um, shortly around that same period of time, Don Kirshner, who... Right, the Brill Building. The Brill Building. He had the... Uh, was it Alden Music? Don right. Kirshner um, is from the Brill Building era, um, which is a building in New York that housed a lot of different... Carol Kang. Right. If you see, if you see Beautiful, um, right. it, it's, there's references there, but... Um, it's, it's a building in Midtown Manhattan. And so there were a lot of songwriters that came out of there. But um, this, then there's uh, Mr. the famous Mr. Phil Spector, who um, we all know, I hope. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, Mo- Motown. Motown. But the interesting thing about all these places is they basically lasted six years. They all kind of lasted six years. And then what usually happens is that the artists who sort of start out as the low men on the totem pole, because it's really the producers that are the artists, uh, but the artists are promoted as the artists, and then the artists start thinking that they really are the artists, and who knows, maybe they're right. I mean, they are the ones singing the songs. They're out there on stage. And so they demand more creative control over the songs, often wanting to write the songs, and uh, and then everything kind of falls apart. Uh, and uh, also, if a song factory is particularly successful, people start imitating their sound pretty quickly, and you have to be able to change. But what's interesting about the guy who's the central character of the Song Machine, who is a Swede named Max Martin, who has written uh, hits. He's had. Uh, <laughs> Well, his streak uh, in terms of years is going going from Hit Me Baby One More Time in 1998 to I Can't Feel My Face in 2015. So 17 years, which is way longer than six years, obviously. Uh, and in that course of that time, he's written such seminal uh, career-making hits as um, Since You've Been Gone for Kelly Clarkson, I Kissed a Girl, for uh, Katy Perry, um, a lot of the Pink songs. Then the last nine Taylor Swift hits, the last two albums worth of hits, and now The Weeknd. And, and uh, you know, he's going stronger than ever. And so why is this guy able to last so much longer than these other people? And I think the answer uh, kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about working in groups Instead of just working with like one other person, the way it was Lieber and Stoller or you know Backrack and David or Lennon McCartney, uh, you know Jag and Richards, he has switched partners periodically as the sound uh, that he made with that previous partner showed signs of uh, aging. So in the '90s, he produced songs, for, all those songs for the Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears. But then there was sort of a backlash against that. But then he hooked up with Dr. Luke and kind of reinvented his sound 
And that was that kind of Katy Perry rock kind of sound. And then switched up again, and with a new guy, did the Taylor Swift songs. And really what he's done is created a system. So you have like a mentor that, you know, trains the protégés. And the mentor kind of understands how to make it a pop hit. But it's the young people, and they, and they constantly are actually looking uh, to, like, they do listen to the tapes people send them or the CDs or whatever the, you know, the MP3s. Because if you're in that position uh, and you're 44 years old or whatever, you just are not going to be able to kind of know what the next sound is going to be. But you, you do have an ability to recognize talent and it's the talented people that you recognize that will know, you know, what the next sound is going to be. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting relationship because both sides need each other in this kind of uh, symbiotic way. The mentor really does need the protégés to keep him, like, in touch with, with what's going on, particularly as, I think in the case of Max Martin, as hip-hop has become more and more a part of, you know, pop, and, and the crossovers just become kind of richer and richer and more interesting. Uh, as a Swede, as a guy that kind of grew up totally outside of hip-hop, he's really totally dependent on, on younger hip-hop producers to help him there. But at the same time, being able to work with Max Martin, if you're a young uh, you know, producer or songwriter or, or an artist, whatever, is like an extraordinarily gift because it brings you into the mainstream and... And, and exposure to these, I guess, secrets of the trade uh, that, you know, few know. The amazing thing about Max Martin, this guy, just, just, just stopping him for a second. Okay, so he's, he's written 21, 22 Billboard number one hits. Uh, Lennon wrote, I think, 23. Uh, McCartney's written 32. So he's a little bit behind, but he's still going. But the other thing amazing about him is he sings his own, he does his own demos, and he has a really nice voice, and he looks pretty good, too. So he actually could have been the artist that, that did all these songs, and in that case, he would be like, you know, Lennon and McCartney. But instead, he has uh, found all these other people to sing his songs, but to sing them just the way he sings them, you know, on the, on the demos. Uh, if you ever get a chance to hear a Max Martin demo, you'll see that uh, it sounds remarkably like the finished record by the artist. But, of course, he recorded the demo before the artist did the song, so in a way they're, like, covering him. Uh, it's a very unusual situation, and I can only think that, like, he's this unique person that, for whatever reason, denied himself you know, the fame and glory of being the artist, and therefore has been able... This is another reason I think he's lasted as long as he has, is because he's sort of, like, stayed out of the whole red-hot, white-hot celebrity heat and just been able to concentrate on his work. And I'm sure that's helped him as a songwriter, too, yeah. What I, what I find fascinating with these hit factories, if you will, the interchangeability of the songs and or the artists like Spectre would record a song with Darlene Love put it out as the Crystals and Motown has reissued and you can hear Temptation songs sung by Michael Jackson or or Jackson 5 songs being right. sung by the Four Tops and so it just seems 
you know, it was just there's a, there's a cycle there where you know it's or, or even uh, Rihanna's Umbrella, which was written for someone else and they rejected it and she took Pretty it. So actually, yeah, yeah, great. Pretty baby, baby, one more time was written for TLC. Right. And they rejected it because they weren't going to sing a, a song that said, Hit me, baby, one more time. The, the very phrase, Hit me, baby, one more time, is an interesting uh, little uh, item because, you know, I don't think a, a person for whom English was a first language would have written that line as the hook in a song. It sounds kind of like a violent sort of situation. But because they're Swedes and because they don't quite get it, uh, English-wise, they were just really trying to, like, be cool and, you know, sort of say, like, call me up one more time. But it didn't, it would be like, hit me back, really, is what they should have said. Uh, But they didn't because they didn't have anybody around them that told them that's really what Americans say. But actually, it's much better, hit me, baby, one more time. And, and this was actually something that I, a theme that I developed as a, and, and talked about with songwriters who work with Max Martin as uh, working on the book. And what, what they said was that because the lyric, the, the real difference in, in the way songs are written in, you know, sort of Brill Building, Tin Pan Alley, and the way songs are written today is the role, the, the literary part of the song, the lyric. The, 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 what the lyric does in the song. And I think that the songs, even from like, you know, the 60s, uh, even though, uh, I mean, songs of all, songs back in the publishing days, when there were no records, lyrics had to be extremely important because that was basically like the title of the song was, you went into the store and you saw some kind of clever, I mean, the hook was a literary hook. It was like, you know, how much is that doggy in the window or something? And, yeah, you, you bought it partly based on the way the words sounded. But as we progressed further and further into the sort of, you know, age of records and now into this kind of age of electronic production, uh, I think that the sonic element of the song has become more and more important. And the words have begun to be there more to serve the sounds than to sort of stand alone as a separate meaning, and and I think that uh, that's why the Swedes have been so part part of the reason why they've been so successful is because when they think of words, they don't really think of them as like clever, you know, poetry like double entendre, uh, you know, wit. I think they tend to think of it more as how the sounds of the words fit with the sound of of the hook of of the melody. Max Martin calls it melodic math, like matching up syllables with sounds. And, uh, you know, actually, I, I actually do think uh, there might be something in that. Uh, I think double entendre, I mean, it's interesting, just like double entendre, which was a huge part of songwriting, if you think back to like Cole Porter, like all the clever ways people had for talking about sex, really, in songs, because, you know, it was a, you had to be clever in order to get away with it. Uh, but when, you know, after like, you know, 50 Cent, you know, whatever, like, whatever you want to, or Eminem, like, those guys really, I feel like, changed a lot in the early 2000s when hip-hop really changed a lot about, like, 
how you can talk about sex in songs and really sort of did away with a need, uh, need for double entendre. Uh, so I just feel that, you know, that's... In the, in, the, in, in, in the time that I was writing about, I think, the lyric component of songs, I mean, it's kind of like disco kind of won in a certain way. Like, dis- the lyrics in disco were always sort of stupid, right? Because it was really just there to, like, you know, dance to, right? And, and rock lyrics were, you know, important because it was like, you know, it was, a, it was a poetry. It was like, this is serious shit. But I feel like the songs on the radio now are, are, are really more like disco songs. Like the words Disposable. are there for like keeping the dancing thing going, you know? I, <clears throat> when you mention rock, I always think of, I still can't figure out what this means. It's a big hit for the, rock, the German rock group Scorpions. Song called "Rock You Like a Hurricane." Right. What does that mean? "Rock You Like a Hurricane." I never. I never. I was like. like I remember the first time I heard that. Like you, I was like, "That's not going to be a hit. No one's going to understand what that means." Wrong. Yeah. So words. I think words need to tell you how to feel in a song. Maybe you know, like what you're supposed to sort of feel. They don't necessarily have to make sense. Right. I think. That's that's true. Although I think this is a difference between, like, if you go to France or Italy, I mean, there you... It's funny, like, these these Swedish pop songs where the words are, like, not really, at least not in a literary way important, do very well on the charts in the UK and in, and in the States. But, like, in, in more of the Southern European countries, they don't because because, first of all, they don't speak English that well. And second of all, I think they still have a much stronger tradition of, like, the songwriter as sort of troubadour, you know, you know, like the ballad singer, you know, the Dylan, the, sort of the Dylan person. Uh, I, I feel like we've easily kind of turned away from that tradition for whatever reason. I'm not sure what it is, but there's not that many people like that. Instant gratification. I don't know. I mean, one of the other th- tricky things, I think, when you guys are trying to sort of like look back over a century of uh, music is that you've got like this weird period in the 60s and the 70s when suddenly, you know, because before the Beatles arrived, before Dylan, yeah, songs were made in factory settings. Most artists sang songs that they didn't write. The notion of an artist writing their own material was definitely the exception and not the rule. And, you know, that was how music companies worked. They had songwriters on the staff that wrote the songs, and then the A&R guy would say, I'm going to match, or the publishing guy would match a song with a writer, I mean, a song with an artist. And, and that was basically just how your career worked. But, but then you had this sort of very sort of fantastic, mysterious outpouring of bands, basically, but also solo artists, that did write their own material. And, and it quickly became like a badge of artistic merit. And, 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 and you had to, in order to be taken seriously as a rock band, you, you couldn't have other people writing your songs for you. That just was just totally not happening, you know. Like, and if it happened, like, it happened like John Bon Jovi, you had to keep it very, very quiet uh, because if it got out, you'd get into big trouble. Much as the way it actually is the case in hip hop. Today, you know, with like the controversy over whether somebody wrote Drake's verses on Meek Mill, like 
the idea that you don't write your own raps is still like uh, a, a stigma in the hip-hop world, but really not. Uh, anyway, so we had this brief period where there was this romantic notion of the artist you know, as, as a poet, but then it, it, it kind of it ended, and it's sort of been dead for kind of a long time, but in some ways we're still sort of like psychologically living in this era where we want to believe that the artist uh, is the writer and that the artist is speaking to us in some sort of like authentic way. We don't really think that actors are the writers of the movies we see them in, but I think there is, a, there is an impulse to want to believe that the, the songs we hear, like the Rihanna is really singing about something that happened to her, you know? It makes a song better. Well let's, well, let's talk about Rihanna and how, I mean, you go into quite depth on how she was, you know, Robin Fenton, a Barbadian. That's the right word. Fenty. Uh, she was, yeah, Barbadian. She's from Barbados, right. whatever. Yes. And so... Baja or something, maybe. But anyway. So these, these two songwriters were, was it vacationing? and came across her down there and were presented to her. And, yeah. And they brought her to the States. And many record company executives make mistakes. And the first place she was taken to, I believe it was Clive Davis of all right. places. And whomever there... It was, uh, yeah, it wasn't Clive. It was that guy who died last year. One of his associates yeah. Didn't, yeah. didn't get it, didn't hear it. Well, there again, I mean, yeah, it's amazing still that uh, whole careers depend on, like, walking into the boardroom at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning and having to sing to the marketing department. And, like, if they like you, you get a deal. And if they don't, that's see you later. And decisions are made just like that. Uh, you know, I think one thing that people often say is that nobody knows anything. You know, like in the music business, I don't know if that's entirely true. I'm sure you guys know stuff. And it's good to know things, but it's interesting how often the decisions, the major decisions are made just on impulse because no one really does know how things are going to turn out. And um, that's, that works hit by hit. A lot, a lot of, you know, the, the interesting tension in the book is... Um, because, you know, this stuff is very mechanized, so what you, but the, what you really want to mechanize is you want to ensure that once the song is out there, it will be a hit. Like, that's what you really want to mechanize, so there aren't these, all this money wasted on songs and artists that never go anywhere, but they don't seem to be able to do that, uh, despite every effort uh, and all these interesting you know, ways of testing songs, which go, which, which certainly still go on. And, you know, there's always, you always read the article about the algorithm that you can feed all the characteristics of all the hit songs for the last century into, and then it's a very, uh, it's a very smart algorithm, and then you play your song for that algorithm, and it'll tell you that it's a hit or not. And it, you know, it only works, it always works, some of the time, but not all the time. And you know, when <clears throat> when I was uh, younger and worked at Atlantic Records in the seventies, um, my boss would test records with a guy named Tom Tekariki. and Tom 
you give him the song before it was manufactured, sent to radio, and he would do galvanic skin responses, much like a lie detector. Okay. And that was the way he would judge whether somebody like was excited about a song. That's interesting. And that was like, and you know, of course, there's today, something. yeah, there's always been somebody who's come up with some metric, a way of yeah. hit predictor. I mean, the the thing that uh, struck me uh, once, I was talking to Jason Flom, uh, who you guys, he's you know been in the record business for a long time. He was saying, like, in terms of like getting people to to figure out whether a song was a hit or not, like when you ask people in an A and R department to listen to a song, they're sitting there and listening to the song as, you know, sort of A&R people, and, and that's one way of experiencing the song. But the way people really experience songs and, and, and hear songs that they like is, you know, they hear it on the radio, it comes on. It, they don't put it on for the first time because they don't even know the, the song. So the song is kind of comes to them without them waiting for it or, you know, consciously sitting and listening to whether it's a good song. It just comes on, and that's the way you, you have to... That's the way you can tell if it's a good song. But people in, in A&R departments can't actually do that because they're listening... You know, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a psychological thing, but it seems to be really true. Um, it's a you, difference. You, you mentioned Jason Flom. Um, so here's a guy who's very successful now with Lord, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and a whole bunch of stuff. But um, he took a, a, an artist that one of his junior people brought to him that Columbia Records had dropped. She was a, a Christian artist initially, Katie Hudson. And um, he listened to the music, and he had that vision that it, that it was good, but not good enough and go back and write another song until he found right. the, the, the two or three other songs that he felt fleshed out what was an album for Katy Perry. I mean, he said, you don't have a hit until I Kissed a Girl was written. But she had been dropped twice before that. And right, there was Columbia and somewhere... Uh, she had been dropped by Columbia, then she had been dropped by uh, maybe EMI or, or, or somebody. But And so, she, so the, in her case... Yeah, I mean, and again, this is like goes to show like the importance of vision, seeing an artist. And so she started out as a Christian artist, yeah, and and she had an album as a Christian artist. She didn't do that well. Then she decided she wanted to be Alanis Morissette. That's who she really wanted to be, because right. it was like uh, you know uh, the mid '90s, and it was when Alanis Morissette, you know, was all the rage, uh, and so. She went to find um, the guy who wrote those songs with with Alanis Morissette, the producer uh, who wrote, you know. Oh right. You know. No, no not him, but. Um, Glenn Ballard. Glenn Ballard. She went to and she just showed up on his. She, maybe she called him in advance, but in her story, she literally knocked on his door and said, "I want to play you a song," and got out her guitar and played a song, and he said, "Great." Let's let's I love it, and and Bass basically wrote an album in which she sounded like Alanis Morissette, uh, and then, but there already was an Alanis Morissette, and so the the label didn't really need another one, so then they dropped it and another uh, label signed her, and at that point, um, Skater Girl was like Avril Lavigne. Yeah, Avril. so then it was like, oh, we want you to be Avril Lavigne. 
I mean, I, I, I feel like sometimes people's vision is just that limited. You know, like whoever is the chart-topping person, we want you to be that person. And, and, and then they tried to do another album, and, and that with the people who are written Avril Lavigne songs, the, the Matrix, the right. production group, the Matrix, and, and then that didn't work. And it, and it was finally, you know, um, it was with Des Desmond Childs, actually. Um, they were doing, um, they got together with her, and they said, well, you know, it's weird because you, you know, when you write, and she wrote a lot of this stuff, at least the, the Lance Morissette stuff, because she sort of saw herself as a singer-songwriter in that kind of tradition, and, and they said to her, well, it's funny because your songs are very serious, but your personality is very sort of bubbly and fun, so why don't we just try to write a song that's kind of like fun, like you, and then they did, um, you know, Kissed a Girl and Last Night in Vegas, or Last Friday Night, or I think it was, and, and that became who she was. It was really I Kissed a Girl, I think, that really sort of defined her, and then and then she had an image, and then she was a superstar very, very quickly. But so it's it's both. It seems easy, but it's easy and hard, I think, to have a vision for somebody, you know. So that takes us up to now, um, and I thought maybe we could talk for a moment about your experience um, with Dr. Luke, who is a protege of Max Martin. If right. So yeah, I did my doc. There's a there's a long Dr. Luke section in the book that was reported in the summer of 2013. Uh, it was right when uh, the next Katy Perry album, which had Roar on it, uh, was being finished. The album was called Prism, and uh, at that point uh, there was a lot of rumors and uh, speculation about what was going on between Dr. Luke and. Kesha because uh, the the last thing they had done together had been that song uh, "Die When We're Young" or right, yeah. "Die Young." Die Young, yeah. And you know, unfortunately, it had come out like right before the Newtown massacre, oh, and right. uh, even though and it, it was it was doing well at that point, but it it had been pulled from the from the radio or people just stopped playing it, and uh, and and then she said that you know she had been forced to sing those lyrics uh, on Twitter. And uh, then it was around that same time that uh, this super fan, uh, whose name was uh, Rebecca Pimmel, uh, started the free Kesha, hashtag free Kesha thing. Uh, and, uh, but there, there are no, none of these allegations about rape or anything had come out, and I never heard anything about it. And uh, so I spent like, you know, uh, uh, three days, you know, part of each day in Dr. Luke's studio watching him work. And, uh, you know, he's obviously a very intense guy. Uh, social skills are perhaps not as highly developed as they might be. Uh, uh, he's, he's clearly, like, just a, a fiend of, you know, interesting uh, character. Uh, uh, got his start as the house guitar player in the Saturday Night Live band. Uh, in the 90s, uh, grew up in New York City, went to like seven different schools, uh, did go to, uh, I think, the Manhattan School of Music and, and studied guitar, and got, uh, went for an audition with uh, Lenny Pickett, who's the saxophone player and leads the band, and still, I think, in, in the Saturday Night Live. 
and uh, used to be at like Tower of Power uh, a long time ago, and um, and he got the gig, and uh, and so in that gig, he learned like a huge repertoire of uh, popular music because you have to learn, you know, Philly Soul and and Motown and you know Stax stuff, and so he, he was imbued with a uh, a very large repertoire of popular songs, but. Uh, he didn't really know how to write those songs. All he really he knew how to like DJ and he was DJing in clubs and he he knew music production, and he was making tracks, and uh, he was actually uh, associated with um, was it uh, was the was James Murdoch's label yeah, Ruckus? Yeah, Ruckus Records, which right. is kind of a storied label in, in early Un- underground hip hop lore, mid well mid nineties hip hop lore. And and he he would make hip hop tracks, but he wanted to make hits. He wanted instead of as he said to me, instead of playing his songs for five thousand people in a club, he wanted to play them for millions of people on the radio. But for that, he needed a melody, you know, like a top line. And and he sort of managed to hook up with Max Martin, this guy who was the master, and together they uh, created a lot of uh, hits. Uh, so and then he mentored some other people. With and he mentored he mentored some other people. Benny, so, co- company called Kimosabe. With Sony, Sony but, gave him a label deal, invested in his label. But Kesha was obviously his big artist and his one sort of big hit making that was on his label. So like Katy Perry is was on you know EMI and. And then ended up with Universal Billion. Yeah, that was Universal as part of Capital, yeah. Yeah, so like he had done a lot of songs for other people on other labels, but he really wants to be a mogul, and uh, so he wanted his own label and his own artists and his own songs. But I actually think that um, his skills, like he's good, you know, obviously coming up with hits, but I think when you're a label boss, uh, you have to be able to step a little bit farther back and say, yeah. well, is my song really the best song for my artist or maybe it's somebody else's song that would be... And I feel like that's what he couldn't do because he wanted everything. He wanted the publishing. He wanted you know, the, the whole thing on, on a hit. And, uh, and so um, I think he, he maybe asked Kesha to write a song. And Ke- so Kesha was signed... Uh, Kesha was 18 years old. She sent up one of these tapes, so I was saying, uh, into, well, she went through somebody who worked at BMI. Uh, her mother is a songwriter who had written sort of some kind of country rock songs in the 70s, lived in Nashville, so had some connections in the music business. And through those connections, uh, her daughter uh, recorded a couple of like vocal tracks and sent it, and, and it got to Max Martin and Dr. Luke, and they listened to it, and Dr. Luke thought it sounded interesting, and uh, and invited her to come out to, uh, to L.A. and they and she did it and and then they signed her to a deal. So she was 18. Uh, she she's a good student. Uh, she was going to go to college, but uh, but Luke convinced her to sign this six album deal, which is standard industry practice. You know, basically signing away a significant part of your life. The average pop career lasts 18 months. So you know. A six-album deal is is a long deal, uh, and uh, and you know um, had some 
hits, big hits. Uh, and the story of how her first hit happened is one of my favorite stories in the book. That was right round the Florida song, uh, where she had the memorable um, "You Spin My Head Right Round" hook on it. And then, of course, TikTok and "Your Love Is My Drug" and you know, major, major hits. Uh, I think the same thing, kind of like I was talking earlier about the dynamic where the producer starts out being completely in control, and then the artist has success, and then the artist... Because Kesha really had a different vision for her music. She really wanted to be more of like a rock chick. She never really wanted to be this hip-hop, fun, party chick, you know? Uh, Sounds a lot like uh, <clears throat> what's uh, from American Idol. Kelly Clarkson. She had the same disease. Yeah, this, this is what happens. Like, you know, you, as an artist, you, you, you have some, a different vision, but you're willing to go along with the producer at the beginning because it, it, it's the producer's world. And by the way, all of the producers are men. Uh, every single producer that I ever encountered uh, and ever even heard of in this pop world it was a man, is a man. And, and virtually all the top liners are women. So it's extremely sort of like gender separate and weird and sort of sexist in a lot of ways. Uh, Race-wise, it's very diverse, uh, but gender-wise, not so much. And, and so I think part of that was part of the dynamic with Kesha was just like, you know, you're this young girl, you'll do what we asked you to do and you won't, you won't say boo about it. And she did that. Uh, and then to what extent the rape happened, we don't actually know, but I feel like, you know, of course that is horrendous, but it's not entirely out of, inconsistent with the somewhat totally unequal nature of this whole relationship. And, and so at any rate, uh, she eventually, I guess, you know, was this whole bulimic thing, and uh, he, he apparently had brought that on by, by making these disparaging remarks about her, her body and... Uh, and then uh, she, this lawsuit uh, uh, was uh, revealed in 2014. So by that point, you know, I've sort of like basically written this stuff, but the book, you know, was, I still had time to add. So of course I would wanted to talk to him, but he never, he, has, he hasn't given any interviews about it. Uh, and uh, of course he's been sort of tried and convicted on Twitter which is in itself a little troubling. Uh, whatever happened, I feel like we should probably like wait until the court gets a chance to review the situation. But uh, it's it's almost unprecedented to the extent to which like the whole free Kesha thing has become such a very powerful, almost like a political <laughs> movement or something. And I think the best thing that could come out of it is if it does expose some of these kind of sexist practices, uh, and you know. Whatever the specific allegations, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, you know, I feel bad for her because she can't record, and uh, and this is the prime of her life. But I also kind of feel bad for him because basically he's like America's most hated man, and uh, you know, it's not even clear what what actually happened. So. I wanted to um, switch gears and just go into some of the student questions, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, Adrian has this question. She did her homework. She uh, read this separate article, Who's Really Paying for Adele? 
So she wants to know, did you ever hear from the artist manager or publicist after you written an article about them? If so, which stories were you contacted by anyone from Adele's team after the article was published? No. Uh, they tend not to, like Adele's team, or, uh, you know, having... Uh, you, you, could, you might hear from the publicist. Uh, you know, as a, as a journalist... Uh, uh, your your point of contact is obviously the publicist and vice versa. Publicist's point of contact is the journalist, and and the relationship between the music publisher and the journalist, and and, and, and you know, in a certain extent, all publicists is always a complex one, uh, uh, and it occupies a significant part of your your life if you're going to be a journalist or a publicist, because you're you're all you're involved in this. You're constantly involved in this kind of Dance where uh, you, the writer, want the story. You want access to you want access to the artist, uh, which is increasingly difficult to get. Uh, it used to be that the artist kind of needed you uh, because they they didn't have Twitter or you know Instagram to put their stuff out on. But now, with social media, they have thirty five million followers. Way more than you have subscribers, and why do they really need you in the first place? So, you really need to offer them something that you know uh, they can't get anywhere else. Uh, but you know, you're not actually sure what, when you're sort of pitching this how the story is actually going to come out. You know, because you don't really know it's going to be. You know, you know, it's, you, you could even if it's going to be like favorable. Or I mean, there's a lot of you don't. You try not to be like a and lie to them about it, but you know, you're putting, painting a very rosy story that may not end up being as rosy as you're painting it. Meanwhile, they're like saying, well, we need you know, this and this, and we need, want to control this, and you know, can we like, see the quotes, or can, you know, can we console on the photographer? And so it's always like this kind of, there's a lot of negotiation that, is going, that goes on before you actually get you know, a chance to sit with the artist. And the bigger the artist is, you know, it's like Adele, uh, the, harder, the harder it is. So, and, and you'd almost never get a chance to talk to the manager. Like, the publicist tells the manager what you tell the publicist, right. and then the manager tells the publicist what to tell you, and then presumably the manager talks to the artist about it. It's a game it. of telephone in some So you're like generally like two removes from the right. artist. Interpretation. At all times. And you're not really sure like if your messages are being passed along or not. It's true. But, you know, that's, how, that's the game. You mentioned on the way over tonight that this book's coming out in paperback this fall yeah. with, with some um, additional material. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's been interesting to go. It's been great how uh, so many people are interested in in this. A lot of them from outside the music business. I think the paperback, you know, will just be. It's a book that I think younger people will enjoy reading, and maybe couldn't afford the hardcover. And well, <clears throat> I do want to thank you for making the journey here tonight and coming to William Patterson, and. Um, Look forward to the paperback, and thank you for your time. Good luck, guys. Thanks. Thank you.
been listening to William Patterson University's Music Management Seminar Series on Music Biz 101 and more. If you missed any of this, just head over to our website, musicbiz101wp.com, or Stitcher Radio on your mobile device and download our podcast. I think it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye now. For Steve Leeds, our special guest, our esteemed and very valuable producer, Philip Grachowski, and the good doctor, Esteban Marconi, I wish you an adios!